The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 15-19. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have never stopped giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Gabby. So for Christmas, just a few weeks ago, one of my sons bought the entire family a large Lego set. So his, his thought that we would enjoy putting it together as a family. Now, I haven't put a Lego set together in at least a decade because once my boys were big enough to do it without me, they wanted to do it without me, right? They, they wanted to do it themselves. And so we had a good time putting the pieces together, uh, creating the finished model, but if I'm being transparent, we only had a good time doing it because we had a booklet that had clear step-by-step instructions. Like if it had been a box full of empty, just Legos, and we were supposed to figure it out ourselves, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Frankly, I wouldn't have done it. Have you ever tried to build something or assemble something or even cook something without a good set of instructions? It can be incredibly frustrating because you're not sure what you're supposed to do next. And part of the frustration stems from confusion. Like you're, you're, you're working on it and you're thinking, did I, did I do the right thing but in the wrong order? Maybe I, I, maybe, maybe I just did the wrong thing. It's, it's unclear. Everything is supposed to fit together well and it's not fitting together. And eventually those feelings of frustration and confusion turn into disappointment. Right? This isn't turning out like you thought it would turn out. It's not going according to plan, and if you're like me, you begin to spiral, and you finally say, nothing ever seems to work out. Have you ever felt that way about life? Just unclear about what you're supposed to do next? Frustrated because you don't know what you should do? Confused about the decision to make? Disappointed because you feel stuck? It's hard to know sometimes, am I supposed to start something new? Am I supposed to stop something I'm doing? Should I do both of those things? Should I do neither of those things? Have you ever felt like you've plateaued? Like you're you're stuck in the same job or you're stuck in the same habits of poor health or you're stuck in the same slightly dysfunctional relationships? Your life feels like you're knee deep in the mud and you're going, is it even worth the effort of pulling my leg out if I don't know where to step next? That same sensation of being stuck can describe our spiritual lives at times. Sometimes we're stuck in just a a serious sin. But sometimes it's not a serious sin. We're just stuck in a spiritual rut. We're uncertain how to get out of it. We're trying to figure out, what should I do next? Sometimes a whole church can feel stuck in a rut of just sort of mundane, everyday Christian living. Not plagued by obvious sin, but also not experiencing much spiritual vitality. Our passage this morning is just five verses long. 
And it recounts the prayer the Apostle Paul prays for this church in Ephesus. Now, this church in Ephesus is interesting because it does not seem from the letter that it has a lot of problems. Certainly not the problems that we see in other churches as, as, as the Apostle Paul writes letters addressing big issues of sin or, or, or wrong theology. It, we don't see that here. This church seems to be strong and faithful and growing. And so what the Apostle Paul prays for them is very instructive for us because he shows us what's next in our life as a church, what's next in our life as individual Christians. What does God want us to do next? What is the next step if we're to continue to keep growing in our Christian life and in our faith? Now notice this is written to a church. It's not written to individual Christians. So if you're a Christian but you're not connected to a church... Maybe you're just here for the first time this morning, but you're not connected to a church. You need to get connected to a church because that is the context in which you are supposed to receive and implement what is being talked about in this passage. If you're not a Christian, I think this can be helpful for you to have an understanding of what the next step for a Christian is because it'll actually inform what your first step should be. We can split these verses 15 through 19 into two parts. So in verses 15 and 16, we'll see him describe a growing church, and then in 17 through 19, he gives direction for continued growth. So the description of a growing church is how we begin. The way the Apostle Paul describes this church in Ephesus should be true of all churches, should be true of our church, should be true of all Christians and churches, so it should be true of each one of us. I do believe this is true of us as a church, that a church is to be known by two things, by its faith in Jesus and its love for each other. A growing church has visible faith and love. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So I want you to think about how this conversation went when the Apostle Paul, he says, I heard about your faith and love. So try to picture it in your mind. The Apostle Paul has a friend who comes into town, and this friend has spent time with the church in Ephesus. So the Apostle Paul gets, sees him, he, he hugs him, and he says, tell me how the church is doing. G give me all the details. So do you think his friend looked at him and said, they have faith in the Lord Jesus, and they have love for all the saints? That's my report. Or do you think it's more likely that he started to talk about some of the individual Christians and some of the things he saw when they met together? Maybe he said something like, like Sister Mary, her husband died when I was there and she trusted the Lord to provide for her even though her husband was gone. And then, then Brother Bill actually sold some of his land and he took the money he made and he provided for Sister Mary and some of the other widows. Do you think it was stories like this that he was told that, that convinced him that they had faith and love? See, what he heard about was real, practical actions that displayed faith and love. Love and faith made visible. Now, these are two necessary ingredients of a growing church. Now, by growing, I don't mean a church that is growing numerically, though often when a church is spiritually healthy, it makes disciples. That's part of being healthy, and it might see growth. The growth here is, is growth into maturity, into greater conformity to Jesus. And we'll see this becomes a theme throughout the letter. What, what I want to do now is I want to, like Paul did, I want to praise the Lord for visible faith here. A week ago, I sat in the home of Streeter and Arcana, 
And I heard the story about how God saved them out of Hinduism and how they have rejected this idolatry that was part of their family for generations. Arkana told me how when she became a Christian before Sweeterhead, she gathered up all the idols to get rid of them and he had to go and bring them back. Why? Because what she was doing visibly was she was rejecting faith in these false gods in order to trust the Lord Jesus. You've heard from Sridhar already, you're going to see in just a few moments, he's going to stand in this tank of water and he is going to say, Jesus is Lord. His faith will be visible as he, as he is buried with Jesus in baptism and he rises from him to walk as a follower of Jesus. I've heard of John and Reverie and how even this week they're responding with faith as John's, as his, his disease progresses and it impacts his ability to work. I've seen Nan and Diane and Peter and Barry's faith as they lost a spouse, trusted the Lord through it. Jackson and Gracie's faith as they trusted the Lord as an adoption failed. Right, I could keep going. We have seen and we have heard of the faith that God is producing in his people. So I, we praise God for it, not just for the faith though. Also he says their visible love for each other. Look at their love is growing, it's growing wider. Your love here includes more and more people. I don't mean by that increased attendance. What I mean is there are, God is bringing people from diverse backgrounds and you are opening your arms and you are demonstrating his love for them. It means you are sending resources and people to Ireland and to Moldova and to Montenegro so that the love of Jesus will be spread to more and more people. Your love is growing wider. It's also growing deeper. You know, good relationships are like good wells. They go deep and... The deeper you go, the more refreshing the water. The deeper you go in a relationship, the more your soul is refreshed. And you're unwilling to settle for shallow relationships and surface conversations because you want deep, refreshing love. Your love is longer. What I mean is it travels with more people. It pursues them. It refuses to give up on others. It, even if they fail you, even if they offend you, you're not going to turn your back on those who make sinful choices. Your love suffers long. And your growing love is not just for those most like you. It's not love for your closest friends. It's not love for the important and influential. Verse 15, you, like this church in Ephesus, love all the saints. I've seen your love, which has no place for bigotry or prejudice. You love Mike's way. If you don't know what I mean by that, you've never been to Jersey Mike's. <laughs> so if you go get a sub at Jersey Mike's, you can order it Mike's way. I don't know who Mike is, but I know what Mike's way is. Mike's way means they throw everything on your sandwich. So they throw lettuce and tomato and onion and pickle and oil and vinegar and salt and pepper. If they've got it, they throw it on the sandwich. I don't order my sandwich Mike's way. I order my sandwich Josh's way. I don't trust Mike. Like, I, I pick, I look right there and I pick the things I like and I choose those things and the things I don't like, I, don't, I choose not to have those. That's Josh's way. But a growing church doesn't love Josh's way, it loves Mike's way. It loves, well, we don't pick and choose based upon personal tastes or preferences. We love without discrimination, without favoritism. We love all the saints, every single one, no matter what they look like or how they sound. We love Mike's way. Now, what is it that produced in this church and in our church visible faith and love? Notice verse 15 begins with this phrase, this is why. 
So this is connecting it to what came before. Remember the last few weeks we looked at these blessings that God has given us, verses 3 through 14. And so faith and love are a byproduct of God's blessing. So their response, this church's response, our response to all that God has done is to trust Jesus and to love each other. So his work of grace in choosing, adopting, redeeming, enlightening, and sealing us has produced genuine, visible trust and active, sacrificial love. So this is where the church is, and I praise the Lord this describes our church. So what's next, though? How do they take the next step? Now, I suppose if we didn't have this letter and we heard about the the good report of this church who said, what's next? We would probably think, ah, the next step is for them to do something big for God. The next step is some incredible act of ministry, some mighty act of service. But that's not what Paul says is next. Notice what direction he gives for their continued growth. What's next? Well, he doesn't tell them to do something. He asked God to help them grow in their knowledge of him, a growing relationship with God. That's the next step for them. It's the next step for us as a church. It's the next step for you as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is the the step you need most. You need to know God. You need to be brought into a life-giving relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, No matter how long you've been a Christian, this is what's next. You need to understand more about who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. You need to comprehend your future hope, his boundless love, and the power of his spirit at work in you. Look at verse 17. He says, I pray, or I ask, I plead with God. The God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. When I was learning to drive, there was this phrase my driver's ed instructor would say over and over that he would warn us about, and he said, you need to avoid tunnel vision. Now, as a father of three drivers, I've also realized more and more why he said this. So when a new driver, an experienced driver, gets behind the wheel, they have a tendency to focus on like what's right in front of them, that's it, and not in a healthy way, like they're in a tunnel. But the more experience you get, the more you start to notice other things. Those can be distracting, but handled maturely, it's helpful to know you're, you're noticing that car that's coming down the street on the side. Is it stopping? Is it slowing down? You're noticing up ahead of the car in front of you, three or four or five cars, the brake lights turn on, and so your foot starts to hover over the brake. All of these things happen as you grow in maturity. Your, your vision expands. We all have some form of spiritual tunnel vision, and Continued growth happens as our vision and our understanding of who God is and His grace and His love and what He's doing in our lives and the lives of those around us as we see more of it, as we understand more of it. But this expanded vision of God we need is not merely intellectual. So if you're thinking, oh, this is what I need, I just need to read more theology books. 
I need to take a seminary class. Those can be very good. I'm not anti any of those things. But that's not really what this passage is talking about at its root. It's talking about an understanding of who God is that reaches all the way into our heart and causes us to love him more. Notice he doesn't ask in verse 18 that the eyes of our mind are enlightened, but that the eyes of our heart are enlightened. So as our relationship with God grows, our hearts are increasingly captivated by how wonderful and kind he is, and we can't help but love him more. When I think of the eyes of the heart, what I think about is a, a groom at the front of the church on a wedding day. So he's standing there, right? He's sweaty, really sweaty, as every groom is on their wedding day. And it helps that he's in lots of layers of clothes, because that helps when you're really sweaty and nervous. He's standing there, and all of the, all the bridesmaids and groomsmen hey, have ushered in. They're now standing there sweating next to him. And the music paused for just a second. Then the doors are thrown open. Everyone stands to their feet, and in walks his bride. And just, you can picture, right, maybe you've been to a wedding recently, you can picture the groom's face, and he looks back there, and his response is often very analytical, very robotic. There she is. She has entered the room. No. Right? What, what happens is something far deeper than that, right? What happens is his eyes perceiving her It doesn't stop in his brain. It goes all the way down to his heart. And he says, wow, look at her. There she is. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. See, the eyes of his heart have seen her. And now love overwhelms him. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you could say, oh, my heart was overwhelmed with love for God? Are you moved by what he's done as you experience more and more of his love? Because nothing motivates increased faith in Jesus, increased love for the saints like a growing relationship with God. And notice this. If you have been brought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, you're being brought into an already existing relationship. In verse 17, again, the Apostle Paul mentions all three persons of the Godhead. He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what he's showing us is that God has always existed in relationship. And he created us to enter his wonderful, life-giving, love-producing relationship. Our sin cut us off from God. God sent his Son so we could be reconciled with God. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit so we can grow into ever ever-increasing fellowship with him. What this means then is what you and I need most is not something new. We don't need something different. Our, Our fundamental need is not to start doing some activity or to break some habit. We need to better understand what we have and who we are in Christ. We need better comprehension of who God is and what does it mean when he says he has blessed us, blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what I need. I need to know in such a way that my heart is affected by it. Now there have been many times 
that my family has left the house. And within about five minutes, somebody's like, um, Dad? And I recognize that tone. What it means is they forgot something at home that, they, that we need. And so what I do is I joyfully... That, I don't want to lie. That was said sarcastically. I don't know if I've ever done it joyfully, but I angrily turn the car around and I head home. We pull back in the driveway. They open the door. The dog gets excited. He's going to be disappointed in a minute too when we leave again. <laughs> they go inside the house. They, they look for whatever it is. And once in a while this has happened where they come back into the, to the car. As they're getting close to the car, I notice there's a sheepish look on their face. And they go, oh, um... I had it in my pocket. <laughs> now imagine if this happened every single time we left the house. So every time we left the house, we get five minutes away, we turn around. We go again, five minutes away. Like how frustrating would life be if you're like, every time we try to go anywhere, this happens, we never get anywhere. But I think that's what we do spiritually. It's like, oh, I need something new. I need something different. I don't have what I need. I need something else. When everything we need, we have in Christ. Everything. And all we've got to do is we've got to keep walking with him and better understanding what is ours already in him. If he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, what else is there that we could need? So here in verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul, he's going to just highlight three of these things to help us better understand our, our relationship with God. And I want you to notice these things mirror much of what he's already told us in verses 3 through 14. And he's just saying, listen, the more you get this, how God has blessed you, the more your relationship with him will grow. Here's the first thing we need a better understanding of is God's call. He says this, that we need to know the hope of his calling. Verse 18, what does he mean by the hope of his calling? Well, God's calling has already been described in this chapter. This is verses 3 through 14. How he chose us for himself before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. How he predestined us to adoption as sons. How he, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. How he is illuminating our heart and understanding to see his plan in Jesus Christ and how he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. This is his calling. God has called us from death to life. He has called us from darkness to light. And he says this calling should produce in you not wishful thinking but tremendous hope, a type of hope that can anchor your soul even when the winds and storms of life seem to threaten to overwhelm you. Listen, we live in a world that's not good at producing hope. We live in a world that's, that, that feeds on despair. Right? And we understand why, because if we you know, turn on the news, we go online, it's there, right? There's violence, there's wars, there's fighting, there's broken promises, there's broken homes and broken relationships. There's rising costs. There's what seems like endless problems. And so what happens is despair pushes us to seek escape. And that's why what our world offers us is it offers us a plate of despair and then it gives us entertainment, a glass of entertainment so that we won't have to look at the despair. But just think about our world. It's designed currently culturally just to fill our lives with entertainment. 
And, and what these two things go hand in hand. There's no hope for the future. There's nothing. Your life is miserable. Nothing can be fixed. So just entertain yourselves. We all know, maybe we know where the person, we all know a person who scrolls on their phone all the time. And if you could get them in a moment of honesty, you say, is, do you feel better when you do that? Does that make you happier? Do it like, I've seen, like, sometimes, like, have you reached the end of the internet yet? Like, what else is there possibly to look at? But they would admit, like, no, there's, there's not, they're not finding anything that's wonderful there. It's, it's just a way not to live in despair. We're playing another level of a video game. Continuing, a new, oh, new video game, new year. Got to, got to, got to get a new one. Or maybe, I know there's some older people who retire and then they turn on cable news and it's just on all day long in their house. Theologically, I don't believe in purgatory, but that's about as close as I can imagine. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, what, what, what's happening? Is it's dis, like despair. And so like there, they're both being, they're being entertained by despair. I don't even know how that works. Right? But this is, this is what happens. Despair drives people to look for escape and entertainment. So listen, if a person has no hope, why not? Why not escape from the despair by distracting yourself with something entertaining? But does that make any sense for a Christian? Like God has called us out of slavery into a future filled with promises that can never fail. We've been delivered from sin. What do we need to escape from? So if you find in yourself a desire to escape from despair, from drudgery, from difficulty in life, I would say to you lovingly, you are not grasping what God has done for you. The hope you find in Him, the hope you find in His promises are what gives meaning and purpose to your choices today. Here's a second thing we need a better understanding of. We need a better understanding of God's inheritance. Don mentioned this earlier, but verse 18 is not talking about our inheritance from God. We have talked about that earlier in the chapter, but it's talking about God's inheritance. What is God's inheritance? We are. His people, verse 18 says, in the saints, God considers his people to be his treasure. He has chosen a people for himself. He's purchased them at the cost of his son's life. And though we have nothing in us to commend ourselves to him, he loves us and treasures us. So in 1986, there was a two-hour television special about the opening of Al Capone's vault. So if you're not familiar with the name Al Capone, he was a, he was a famous mobster in Chicago in like the 1920s, 1930s. He lived in a hotel while he was there. About 40 years later, they went to renovate the hotel and they discovered these, these hidden um, vaults in, the, in the, the, the basement of the hotel which belonged to Al Capone. So you can imagine once these things were discovered, people started to speculate. What could possibly be in the vault of a, of a rich and famous mobster from the 20s and 30s? And so speculation sort of ran rampant. And so they had this special. And on the special, they were opening the vaults for the very first time to see all the treasures that Capone had left in his vaults. And so on air, they open the vaults and guess what they find? They find dirt and some empty bottles. And that was it. Like, there was no great treasure in his vault. Now, imagine, if you will, that God had a vault that contained all of his treasures. 
And people heard about it. They're like, oh, they've discovered God's vault with all of his treasures. And so they begin to speculate, what would be in there? And maybe some people think, like, I bet there's, like, the Niagara Falls, you know, the Grand Canyon. That's got to be in God's treasure vault. Maybe bigger than that. Maybe it's a planet. Maybe it's a galaxy. I don't know. It's got to be some. Maybe there's some kid who's like, I bet it's a dinosaur. Like, those are cool. I bet God has one of those in there. People are like, wow, maybe great works of art or all the secrets of the universe. Maybe there's a golden throne in God's vault that is, that is as tall as Mount Everest. And so we gather around to watch as the, the, the vault door is opened on God's treasures. And we look inside and guess what we see? We see ourselves. What God calls his riches are his people. It's not the Grand Canyon. It's not Niagara Falls. It's not dinosaurs. It's us. God treasures us. Do you believe God when he says that? And not just intellectually. It's easy to say, like, well, it says it, sure. Does your heart believe that what God treasures is his people. Because if it did, how would it change your trust in him? How would it change your love for other people? You see, if you really believe that God loved you that much, then you'd be free to love your enemies, wouldn't you? Because you were an enemy of God when he chose to love you. And, and you're not worried about your enemies. You don't fear someone who might be against you because, because what can they possibly do if you're God's inheritance? And so now we're, we're free to love others expecting nothing in return. Like we, we have all the blessings that God has poured out on his people and we belong to him and he treasures us and we're in his vault, which means we're not, nothing's going to get to us. So what could possibly possibly stop him from securing the future for the people he loves. Third, we need a better understanding of God's power. We're going to focus a lot on this next week because this is elaborated in the following verses, but I want you to notice how he speaks about power in verse 19. He uses four different terms for power. He's searching for synonyms because the power of God is so overwhelming that one word cannot describe it. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So if God's call makes us look back to God's choice of us before we were ever born, and God's inheritance causes us to look to the future and his unfailing love, then God's power assures us that there is nothing in the present that will keep God from keeping his promises. We have no idea the power that is at work in us and for us. And here's what he says. He says, listen, there is no meter that can measure God's power. There is no word. There is no language. You put them all together, there are not enough synonyms to describe his power. It's indescribable. It's beyond comprehension. And so what this means for the Christian is that you are not in a situation right now where God's power is unable to help you. There is no sin so menacing that you are helpless. 
No choice so intimidating that you can't obey. The powerful power of God's powerful power. That's what he says. The powerful power of God's powerful power is available to you. It came to you when he raised you from the dead and gave you new life. Resurrection power flows through our veins. So it's God's blessing which produces in us faith in Jesus and love for the saints. He says here, your next step, this is what I'm praying for you, is that you'll grow in your understanding and your relationship with God. And this is going to happen as your eyes, the eyes of your heart are open so you can see more of who he is, how he's blessed you. You'll understand the past and how he called you, the future and how much he loves you, and you'll understand the present and how much he'll help you. But notice this. We need God to open the eyes of our heart. This is not something we can do on our own. We don't have the ability to do this on ourselves. We can't manufacture this. He's got to do it. Now, there are means he gives us by which he says, I accomplish these things. You're here this morning, I hope, because you're like, this is one of the ways God gives me for my heart to be opened in love to him. You're going to show up at a small group this week, and you're going to, your eyes of your heart open. You're going to read your Bible this week, right? Not to, because you've got to check a box, you want the eyes of your heart open to the love and grace of Jesus. So he gives us these means, but we can't do it. He's got to do it in us. But we can thank him for what he's done, and we can ask him for help to grow in our understanding of his grace. And so Paul's example here calls us to constant praise and ceaseless prayer. Verse 15, he says, he never stops giving thanks to God for the good things he's doing in the Ephesian church. Here's what is just undeniably true, that the more we give thanks to God for his work in others, the more we will see God's work in others. It's like when you buy a car and you've never noticed how many of that make and model are on the road, then you buy that car. And like everywhere you drive, you're like, oh, they're there and they're there and they're there. I joke with my wife, she decided we should get a white SUV. That's the, that's the color she chose. And she, until we owned one, we never realized that 97% of all U.S. cars are white SUVs. Just walk out the Costco parking lot. Good luck finding your white But because we had it, now we're seeing it everywhere. The more you pay attention to others' visible faith and thank God for their visible faith, the more you will see their visible faith. The more you pay attention to others' visible love and you thank God for their visible love, the more you will notice it. And one of the ways that you can nurture this type of seeing and thanking God in your heart and in the lives of others is by doing what the Apostle Paul did. Notice he doesn't just thank God for it. He tells them he thanks God for it. And so when you see someone with a visible act of faith, thank God for it, then go up to them and tell them you thank God for that visible act of faith. When you see someone who demonstrates sacrificial love, thank God for their sacrificial love. Find them and say, listen, I thank God for your sacrificial love that I saw here. Can you just imagine for one moment how encouraging it was for this church to hear the Apostle Paul say, when I talk to my Heavenly Father, one of the things I tell him all the time is how thankful I am for your faith 
and your love. But don't just thank God. Ask Him to produce more. Prayer is what opens the eyes of our heart to comprehend the work of God in our world. So pray for us all to grow in faith and love. Pray for us to grow in understanding. Pray that our hearts would be moved by God's love for us. Don't just pray for those struggling. Pray for them, for sure. Don't stop by praying for those struggling. Pray for those growing. Every morning, I take our church prayer list. It's the same one you're handed every few months when you enter. So hopefully, if you've been here for any length of time, you have one of those. And every, every member is listed on that list. And I notice this particular time, there are, 10, there are 10 families per week. And so, not a mathematician, but I realize that if I prayed for two families every weekday, then I would pray for everyone on that list. And so, I started doing that, okay? Two families every day. Now, sometimes when that family comes up, I, I know something that's going on. Maybe I know a particular struggle, Maybe I know there's a particular situation. Maybe I think back to the prayer request I saw the mention on, on Slack, and I'm like, oh, I can pray for that. But there are times I see the name there, and I'm like, I don't know of any particular struggles or any, any unique challenges, any situations. And so what can I pray for them that day? I can pray like Paul does here. Oh, God, will you help them comprehend your love in fresh ways? Will you, will you produce hope in their life? even if their circumstances are pushing them to despair? Would you give them power over sin and temptation? Will you help their faith and love to grow in visible and tangible ways? Brothers and sisters, we must pray because if anything, this, the opening of this letter reminds us that God does the work. God acts. It is God who opens our eyes and strengthens our hearts. And God tells us the one thing we need, the very next step of growth, is to know him more. And then in his grace, God provides it. And so let's commit ourselves to constant praise and to ceaseless prayer for each other. Let's pray together now. Father, we come to you knowing that you alone have the power to produce in us faith and love. It is your blessing on us through Jesus Christ that, that produced in us confidence in your saving plan, confidence in Jesus as Savior. It's what produces any acts of love that we demonstrate to those around us. And Father, we need to know you more. I think of the Apostle Paul talking about his own life, and he says that, that I may know him. His desire for all the churches was to present every Christian mature in Christ, knowing Christ. So Father, may we pray, may we praise you for the good we've done, may we share that with others, and may you do this unique work in us that we cannot produce on our own. Could you give us faith and love, and help it to grow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.